Morning, everybody. Thank you. I appreciate that. Appreciate you joining us this morning at all of our campuses, as well as those of you who maybe are joining us online this morning. Really appreciate you being with us. If you'll go ahead and take out your message notes, you'll see that we are in the eighth and final week of living your blessed life. And for the last two months, we've been exploring together as a church how to experience God's blessings in our lives, how to live the kind of life that God blesses. And and our guide on this journey has been the Beatitudes, these eight opening statements of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in which he unpacks for us eight character traits that lead to God's blessings. Eight things that if and as we develop in our lives, it opens the door for God's blessings. We've talked about things like humility, gentleness, integrity, mercy. Last week our campus pastors did a great job talking about being peacemakers, reconciling relationships. And now today we're going to wrap things up by looking at this very last Beatitude is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, but it's printed there at the top of your outline. This Beatitude is unique. It's different than all the others because this Beatitude, Jesus says, the blessing is not based on what we do, but what is done to us. Notice what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now it's not surprising that Jesus would talk to his followers about persecution. Because Christians and persecution go together like peanut butter and jelly. For over 2,000 years, Christians have been persecuted for their faith. Many of us know of those ancient stories of the very first followers of Jesus. In fact, we know that for the first 300 years of the church's existence, it was literally illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. We know all about Nero, the Roman emperor, feeding the Christians to the lions, covering them in tar and setting them on fire. We know about the persecution that occurred during the Reformation in the Middle Ages. We know about the Spanish Inquisition and the torture chambers and the burning people at the stake. Most of us are somewhat familiar with the persecution of Christians. What most of us are not familiar with is the fact that it continues still to this day. In fact, the persecution of Christians is the most underreported or unreported news item in the world today. In fact, you probably didn't know this, but the highest volume of persecution of Christians has occurred not in the ancient past, but literally within our lifetime. In fact, according to the International Society for Human Rights, a secular organization, according to a recent study they released, 80% of all religious persecution is perpetrated against Christians. 
80%. Sometimes it's by the state or a government or a dictator. Sometimes it takes place by majority religions in a culture. But it is happening today probably more than any other time in history. In fact, since the resurrection of Jesus, there have been about 70 million Christian martyrs. About 70 million people in the last 2,000 plus years have died for their faith in Jesus. 35 million of those, half of those have occurred in the last 100 years. In fact, today, as we're sitting here in church, about 100 million of our brothers and sisters are facing harassment, discrimination, arrest, imprisonment, and even death for simply doing the same thing we are doing, gathering to worship Jesus. In fact, two Christians die for their faith every 10 minutes, hour after hour. Day after day, month after month, year after year. In fact, just in the time that we've been in this service, six of our brothers and sisters have been put to death for their faith. So what are we supposed to do about that? What should our response be as Christians in America with religious freedom? What should our response to the persecution of our brothers and sisters be? Well, notice what the Bible says. Hebrews 13, 3. It says, remember those who are in prison as if you were in prison with them. Remember those who are suffering as if you were suffering with them. Our response should be to care. To identify, to remember what they're going through. In fact, very quickly this morning, let me give you three things that every one of us can do to remember our brothers and sisters who face persecution. First thing, just be informed. As I told you, this is the most unreported news item on the planet. And so in order to stay informed about the persecution that's taking place around the world, you're going to have to be intentional about going looking for it. Because they're not going to share it with you on the news or, or in the newspapers or on, on Facebook. So get informed. In fact, one of the things we're going to do as soon as this service is over, we're going to post on our church Facebook page a short video from stories from some of our brothers and sisters who face persecution every day. That's a, watch that video. That's a great way to be informed. I also want to recommend a book that you get and read. It's called The Global War on Christians. And it's probably the best uh, written book today that keeps you up to date with what's happening all around the world. You can get it on Amazon. You can pick it up at any major book retailer. Get that book and begin to read it so that you can be informed about what's happening to our brothers and sisters around the world. The second thing you can do for persecuted Christians is pray. The Bible says we are to pray for those who are persecuted. And so as you become informed, you become aware of what's happening around the world. Take time to intentionally stop and pray for them. Maybe make a commitment to spend a little bit of time each day or set aside one day each week where you are going to specifically pray for persecuted believers around the world. A third thing that you can do, and this one's going to surprise you, you can pack 
a shoebox. That's right, Operation Christmas Child, the shoebox ministry that we just started, that we're beginning to collect, Samaritan's Purse, the organization behind Operation Christmas Child, does tremendous work in refugee camps. Many of them house families who have been displaced because of their faith in Jesus. They also do a tremendous amount of work in non-Christian majority religion countries where a lot of this persecution takes place. And so by simply packing a shoebox, there is a chance that shoebox could get to a child, a, a child of persecuted Christians. What a great message to that family that God has not forgotten them and that there are Christians in America who are thinking about them. Now there's no guarantee your box is going to go to a persecuted Christian. So what I would say is to increase the chances, don't pack one box Pack 10 boxes. Because if you pack 10 boxes, there's a higher odds that it may go to bless and to encourage a persecuted believer. Those are the things that we can do. And those are all great ways to remember the persecuted Christians. But this morning, I want to focus on what does this beatitude teach us? Here in the land of the free, in the home of the brave. Here, here where there's no risk of being arrested or harassed because you came to church or you lift up the name of Jesus. Because see, that's the reality. We are not persecuted for our faith in America. Now, I know sometimes it feels that way because of the culture and the media have an obvious anti-Christian bias. And you may feel like you're persecuted, but compared to what others are facing, that is no persecution at all. In fact, for us to call ourselves persecuted for our faith, I think diminishes and minimizes what our brothers and sisters are going through. So you won't face persecution. More than likely, in our lifetime, neither us nor our children will face absolute persecution for our faith, but I think every one of us deals with opposition to our faith. You're probably never going to deal with violent oppression for your faith, but you probably deal every day with silent repression of your faith. That subtle pressure from the culture and the individuals around you for you to conform, for you to be quiet, to not speak out, to not stand up for truth. Maybe it's a boss, you know, who encourages you to do something that's a little unethical and if you stand up and refuse to do it, you'll be labeled a troublemaker or not a team player. If you speak out about the moral corruption we see in our culture all around us, there will be those who will try to silence your voice. If you're around people who are praising immoral choices and they say, well, that's okay. You don't believe that's okay? You don't think it's okay to live like that? You don't think that's okay? What's wrong with you? You Christians are a bunch of fuddy-duddies. You're, you're on the wrong side of history. You ever heard that? Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. Well, let me tell you something. History is often wrong. You remember Hitler? In the early 1930s, the American media, including the New York Times, praised Hitler as a great leader, not only for Germany, but for the whole continent of Europe. See, it's not important that you're on the right side of history. It's important that you're on 
the right side. But let me tell you, if you stand up for Jesus and for truth, you're going to face opposition. In fact, look what the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, anyone who belongs to Christ Jesus and wants to live right will, not maybe, not might, will have trouble from others. And so this morning, I want to talk about handling that opposition. How do we handle opposition to our faith? And to help us do that, we're going to look at this great passage from the New Testament book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible or a Bible at 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to look at five things to do when you're facing opposition to your faith. But before we look at those five, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Not all opposition in your life is opposition because of your faith. Not every struggle, not every difficulty, not everyone who pushes back against you is doing that because of your faith. Jesus didn't say blessed are the persecuted or the opposed. He said blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. See, there are some people who call themselves Christians that are are quite frankly rude, arrogant, They are holier than thou. They are judgmental. And they treat the people around them who believe differently from them with just rudeness. And then when they get any pushback, they go, blessed are the persecuted. No, you're not persecuted for righteousness. That's just how people treat jerks. You don't get any blessing for being persecuted for being a jerk. The blessing comes when you live like Jesus lived. When you love like Jesus loves. When you stand up and speak truth to opposition the way Jesus did. And when that happens in your life, five things you need to do to handle it. Number one, be ready. Be ready. Expect it. Be prepared for it. Because the more prepared you are for opposition, the better you're able to handle it when it happens. Look at what Peter writes, verse 12. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Peter says, opposition to your faith is the norm, not the exception. In fact, I would say if you're not facing opposition to your faith, you might want to ask yourself, am I truly living out my faith in a way that other people notice? Expect it. Be ready for it. Jesus said, the world hated me. Why would you think the world wouldn't hate you as my followers? Jesus said, God sent his light into the world, but the world hated the light because the world loved its darkness. And anytime you shine the light of God's love into the darkness, you're going to face opposition. Be ready for it. How does that help? How does being ready for opposition help you handle it? Because it helps you respond to it instead of reacting to it. Responding and reacting are two different things. When we react to opposition, it's usually an emotional knee-jerk kind of thing. It's usually defensiveness and our own insecurities. When we react to opposition, it's usually about us, not about 
Jesus. And so that reaction, that emotional anger and reaction to opposition, that drives people away. In fact, it kind of proves their point when they say all Christians act like jerks. But when we're ready for it, we can respond to it. A response is a thoughtful, prayerful reaction and response to opposition. And when we do that, when we respond with gentleness and kindness to opposition, it opens the door for people to see Jesus in us. And I tell you, I've experienced this in my life. Sometimes the very people who are opposing you in the group for your faith, if you respond like Jesus, they will come back to you privately and individually and say, what do you have that I don't have? The, the more ready you are for opposition, the better your response will be. And the better your response will be, the more positive impact it will have on others. Be ready. Number two, be thankful. When you face opposition, be thankful. Which is interesting because that is almost always the opposite response that we as American Christians have when we face opposition to our faith. We get all bent out of shape when the press doesn't just take our party line and run with it. We're ready to take to the streets with picket signs and, and bullhorns. We are angry. How dare they put me down for my faith? We think it's a time to fight. The Bible says it's a time to rejoice. Look at verse 13. Peter says, be glad. Be glad for the chance to suffer as Christ suffered. Why? Because it will prepare you for an even greater happiness when he makes his glorious return. Two reasons Peter says you can be thankful when you face opposition. One, it just allows you to identify with Christ. To suffer as he suffered. They rejected him. Guess what? They will reject you. They lied about him. Guess what? They'll lie about you. They harassed him. They're going to harass you. They talked about him behind his back. They're going to talk about you behind your back. In fact, the, the more opposition you face with your faith, the more like Jesus you are becoming. You've heard me say this probably a hundred times. God's number one goal for your life here on this earth is to make you more like Jesus. To develop the character and attitude of Jesus in your life. Well, to be more like Jesus, you're going to have to go through the same kinds of things that Jesus went through. Peter says, be glad. You're identifying with Jesus. He also says, we can be glad because it prepares me for what's next. Opposition actually prepares you for what's next in life because life on this earth is not all there is. There is a glorious home awaiting for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And Peter says the greater the struggle here, the sweeter the joy there. The more you go through difficulties here, the more joy you'll have in being there. Look, I get it. That sounds like a, you know, a fluffy, wuffy Sunday school answer. But it's true. That's why Paul said, the suffering in this world is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is in Christ Jesus. 
Paul said that not to minimize the struggle here. Not to say, you know, pull up your big boy pants, quit your whining, and get on with it. No, he wasn't trying to minimize the pain and struggle and opposition here. He was just trying to maximize God's faithfulness to say God will more than even the score. That when you get to heaven, that the deepest, most painful difficulties here compared to that will fade from you. Listen, I don't know the opposition you're dealing with right now. Maybe with your family, maybe at work, maybe with some of your peers. But I'll tell you what I do know. God is faithful. And we can be thankful for that. Be ready. Be thankful. Number three, be prepared for growth. Be prepared for growth because few things will increase the rate of your spiritual growth like opposition. Understand, faith is like a muscle. It grows with resistance, right? You go to the gym to work out. How do you make a muscle stronger? You use it against resistance, against opposition, whether that's free weights or a machine. The more you push back against that opposition, the stronger that muscle will be. Same thing is true in your faith. The more you keep facing that opposition, the stronger your faith muscle becomes. So I notice what Peter says, verse 14. He says, when people insult you because you follow Christ, you are blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Why? Because the glorious spirit, the spirit of God is with you. You see what he's saying? The more opposition you faith, the more God's Spirit is with you, and the more God's Spirit is with you, the stronger your faith becomes. That's why the greatest church growth takes place where there is the most persecution. It's been true throughout 2,000 years of history. In the times of greatest church persecution, those are the times when the church grew the most. That's why I'm telling you right now, the strongest churches in the world are not in America. The strongest churches in the world are in places like North Korea and China and Vietnam in the Middle East. And the reason those are the strongest churches in the world is because they are filled with the strongest Christians in the world because they face persecution. Comfort almost always leads to complacency. If you don't believe that, look around at the American church today. We've never been more comfortable, and yet we've never been more complacent. At any time in our nation's history, today, we have the least amount of commitment and the least number of people being an active part of a church as at any point in our nation's history. Why? Because we're comfortable and we don't grow in comfort. Until you shake things up, until we become less comfortable in ourselves, we will have to really struggle to intentionally grow spiritually. But if that comfort level gets shaken, let me tell you, baby, churches start to grow. You know how I know that? Because I was here the Sunday after September 11th. When terrorists attacked our nation and all of a sudden our feeling of comfort that we could handle anything, that we had the world by the tail, the moment that comfort was shaken, 
This church was packed. Not only this one. Churches all over our community were at overflow. And it lasted maybe a month. After a month or two, when when things kind of went back to normal, complacency set in, and all of a sudden, we're just happy right where we are. Persecution and opposition produce deep faith. That's not only true corporately for the church, that's true in our individual lives. Every time you face opposition, it is an opportunity for you to trust and depend on God more. And most importantly, it's an opportunity for you to focus on Jesus rather than all the distractions of the world around you. I can't help but think of Stephen in the New Testament. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first person to lose their life for their faith. And as he's standing, surrounded by an angry crowd, in the process of getting ready to throw the stones to kill him, the Bible said he looked up into heaven. He saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. His focus was not on the opposition and the persecution. The persecution led him to focus on Jesus. And the opposition to your faith can do that same thing for you. Be ready, be thankful, be prepared for growth. Number four, be bold. Be bold. One of the main goals of those who oppose your faith is to silence your voice. But the Bible says opposition is not a time to shrink back and be ashamed. Opposition is the time to be bold. Look at verse 16. Peter says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God. God, that you bear that name. Circle that word ashamed. Peter was writing to a first century Eastern culture. That culture was a shame-based culture. They used shame to try to control and manipulate people. That's why the woman caught in adultery was drug out into the street publicly because you shame people in order to control them. And in some ways, that's still happening in our world today. That's why almost any time you see a a leading Christian or a a well-known pastor go on to a news program, be a part of a news panel, every time without fail, no matter what the interview is about, very quickly the, the reporters get to a gotcha question. You ever notice that? They can talk about anything, and then all of a sudden, they're middle of, they'll say, oh, so you believe all Jews are going to hell, or you believe all Catholics are part of a cult or whatever. It's a got-you question. Why? Because they want to shame them into silence. And on a smaller scale, that same kind of thing can happen to you. Can happen when you stand up in your office or with your golfing buddies or with your neighbors or with the ladies you're having coffee with. They will still try to keep you ashamed. Peter says, don't be ashamed. See, one of the biggest barriers to being bold in our faith is fear. It's fear. We're afraid of what people will say about us, what they will think about us. We're afraid of what we will look like to the culture and to others if we were to stand for our faith. How do you push through that fear? What's the antidote to fear? The Bible says love. 
Love is always the antidote to fear. That's why the Bible says perfect love drives out all fear. What does that mean? What is perfect love? Who is the only one who loves perfectly? God does. And when I realize that love, and more importantly, when I rest in it, when I know God's love for me, what in the world do I have to be afraid of? See, that's the thing. Spiritually healthy people don't need the approval of others. Spiritually healthy people who know God's love for them, it doesn't matter if not everybody likes them. God's love for them makes them bold for him. So let me ask you, where is fear keeping you from being bold? In your life right now, where are you more worried about what people think than about what God's will is for you? Is it when you have lunch in the cafeteria and you want to pause and thank God for the food, but you're afraid to bow your head because of what other people will think? Are you afraid to put your Bible or your devotional book on your desk at work? Are you afraid to have conversations with people about the hope you have in Jesus? When you're facing opposition, the Bible says be bold in the face of that opposition. And then finally, number five, be aware of God's will. Be aware of God's will when you face opposition. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the more aware I am of God's will for me, the more willing I am to follow him even when the going gets tough. I don't know what God's will for your life is, but I can tell you this. God's will is rarely the path of least resistance. Jesus said, follow me, but the road is narrow. It is a difficult journey. In fact, look at verse 19. Peter says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do what is good. Did you catch that? That sometimes God's will leads us to suffering? Did you know that? That sometimes God's will is that you go through suffering? That's why Jesus said, follow me, but to do it, you better pick up your cross. Not the cross, some pretty little piece of jewelry, but the cross, an instrument of pain and death and suffering. Jesus said, if you follow me, you got to drag your cross down a painful, narrow road. Why? Because God's mean, nasty, and just wants our life to be hard? No, it's because he loves us and because he wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is the content of our character, not our temporary comfort here on this earth. There are three kinds of suffering in this world we live in, and it's not all the same. There's common suffering, there's carnal suffering, and there's Christian suffering. Common suffering is the suffering that we all face. A hurricane hits the coast and the damage and pain is spread across everybody, Christian and non-Christian alike. That's common suffering. That's the suffering of just this world being broken. There's also carnal suffering. That's the suffering I bring into my life. 
when I make bad choices, when I go outside of God's loving boundary, God and his love makes that painful for me to draw me back into the protection of his guardrails. That's carnal suffering, the suffering that I bring on with my own bad choices. But then the third kind of suffering is Christian suffering. Suffering for our faith. And Peter says, when you go through that kind of suffering, do two things. One, commit yourself to your creator. Trust him more. And then secondly, Peter says, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing the right thing. I don't know the opposition you're facing right now, but I do know that God wants to use it and that his will is that you keep doing the right thing because blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted and opposed for righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to snap out of our complacent comfort and care about those brothers and sisters of ours who are being persecuted. Father, help us to remember, help us to pray, help us to give, help us to do what you've called us to do. Help us here in this great country with all the blessings and freedoms you've given us to be hands and feet and eyes and ears and voices that speak up for the voiceless. But then, Father, we also need your help to respond correctly when we're opposed. To use those opportunities to see the growth that you want to bring and to continue to be bold and keep lifting up the name of Jesus and the unchanging truth of your word every day until you return and we inherit that kingdom of heaven. In your name we pray, amen.